Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church, and uh, just really glad that you're joining us today. Well, today we're in the second week in our series on relationships. And last week we started talking about the importance of friendships, uh, friendships in general, and particularly friendship in the context of marriage. And, and we talked about the fact that different cultures have different sort of views of marriage. And, and we talked about the fact that more traditional or, or certainly maybe not traditional, but Eastern cultures uh, generally have a view that marriage is this sort of social contract between families and, and that it's not really so much about romance and, and sex as it is about duty and responsibility and fulfilling social roles and, and, and having children and, and improving the social status of the family. That's sort of one end of the spectrum. And then we talked about that on the other end of the spectrum, in our culture, the primary view of marriage is that it's the opposite. That it's not so much about duty and self-sacrifice and family as it is about the romance and sex, and underneath that, personal fulfillment. Which means that uh, in our culture, we often are looking for that person who is compatible, who is our soulmate. But last week, we talked about the fact that that person is a myth. Because what we're really looking for is someone who uh, is low maintenance, requires nothing of us, but that will fulfill all of our desires and all of our needs. And that's just not a realistic way of thinking about marriage. In fact, if you hold that view of marriage, you're headed for a world of hurt. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that sex and romance aren't an important part of marriage. Uh, they're part of what God created marriage for. And two weeks from now, we're going to talk about that whole aspect. So that doesn't diminish it. It's just not the, the essence, the, the center of all that marriage is all about. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't find happiness and fulfillment in our marriage. That's, that's not the case either. But contrary to popular belief, that's not the primary purpose of marriage. But then if that's not what it is, then what is? I mean, what is the purpose of marriage? What's it, what's it for? That's why it's important that we go back again and ground our understanding of marriage and relationships in the, in the Bible and what God says about marriage because he created marriage and so he knows how best it ought to function. And so here's what he says. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, 26. It says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule. And so there he creates humans. And, and then he says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's what he calls for us to do. The, the Hebrew word for rule means to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. And when he says that we're to subdue the earth, that's not a, that's not a term that means we're to exploit or to harm the earth. That's not at all what that term means means. Rather, it means that we are to harness the raw materials that, are, that make up this planet. We're to use them to make something beautiful and, and good from the sort of pent-up potential that God imbued in all of, all of, the, uh, all of creation. And the, and the modern word for doing that kind of thing is work. Now, a work has got a bad rap. 
In fact, sometimes people think that work is part of the curse, that, that when God cursed Adam and Eve for sinning, that he made them to work. But that's not what a careful reading of the Bible teaches us. It tells us that toil and, and hardship, that you know, uh, uh, sweat and tears, frustration and worry, that's the result of the curse when it comes to our work. But work itself, work itself is something that we were designed to do. It's something that God called us to do before sin entered the world. You see, we were created to work, but not just any kind of work. I mean, we were created to work for human flourishing, to, to partner with God, to make the world a place in which humans can thrive and where God can, so to speak, walk in the cool of the, of the day in the garden with us. I mean, the, the idea is that we are to create what the Old Testament refers to as shalom, a place of human flourishing, which means that we need to recapture a theology of vocation. The word vocation it comes from a Latin word which literally means calling. There is a calling on every single person's life to partner with God in whatever corner of the world that they find themselves in in order to work for human flourishing, in order to see shalom spread in their part of the world. And you have that calling on your life. I have that calling on my life. And this idea of calling, especially in the church, we have the sense like, well, that's for those who do spiritual work, like the pastor. But that's, that, the, the biblical idea is that it applies to everyone. All of us have a calling on our life. All of us. I mean, plumbers and accountants, stay-at-home moms and mortgage brokers, lawyers and engineers. I mean, whatever it is, whoever you are, there is a calling on your life to partner with God to harness the potential that he has put in this world and in your life so that there is human flourishing, so that God can work and move and, and come and work among us. So the question is this, do you know your calling? I mean, it's more than just a job or career. It might include your job and career, it might be a major part of it, but, but it's a sense of like, this is what I was put on the earth to do. This is what I'm good at. This is what I was made for. This is my little corner of the earth to rule over. This is what God has called me to bring flourishing to. What is that for you? I mean, how, how would you define your calling? Adam's calling was to take care of the Garden of Eden. Turns out it was too much work for one guy to do. He couldn't do it by himself. And so that's why God creates Eve. Here's what, here's what God says. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the word helper is the Hebrew word ezer. And when we translate it into English this way, it sounds derogatory, um, like as if God made Adam a personal assistant. But that's not the way that it reads in the original language at all. Ezer can be translated as partner meaning one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. In fact, the same exact same word is used for God himself in the Psalms. The psalmist writes this, the Lord is with me, he is my helper, easer. In other places, the same term is used of military reinforcements without which an army would be crushed. So when God talks about creating a helper, he's not talking about an employee or someone who works for you or someone that you boss around, right? 
He's talking about an equal. He, he's, he uses the word suitable to describe helper, meaning on the same level. It's someone you love and respect and someone who comes alongside you to partner with you in a project or an assignment or a task. You see, the purpose of marriage, the purpose of marriage is not about personal fulfillment. It's about having a shared vision, a common purpose to bring shalom, to bring human flourishing into whatever sort of corner of the world that you find yourself living in. Which means that you should consider this question if you're married. What is the calling on your marriage? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What is it together that God is calling you to do and to accomplish? Because you see, healthy marriages are built around a calling. Marriage is meant to be a means to an end. As we talked about last week, it exists for friendship, for sure, but also for much more. It also exists so that together you partner with God to, to make a place of human flourishing, to bring shalom into the world around you. If your marriage simply exists for yourself, even if it just simply exists for one another, you're in trouble. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse on, in upon itself. See, because marriage, by, by God's design, exists for something much larger than just itself. And it can't just be for great sex or to pile up more and more money for yourselves, right? I mean, those are unstable foundations. They're, they're, they're fleeting visions for a marriage, right? Because physical attraction, I mean, no matter how hard you fight against time, time always wins and it just fades. And money, I mean, you can pile up all the money that you want. You can, you can pour your whole life into that. And then... Someone in the stock market makes one decision or, or you know, the, some bureaucrat in the government of the United States or in China makes a decision or someone reorgs the chart at your work and suddenly all of your work, all of your money disappears overnight. <clears throat> so those aren't great foundations for a vision for marriage. So what is the vision? What is the calling for your marriage? And maybe you're saying, oh, Sean, I mean, it sounds so good, but you have no idea. We are so different. A common vision? I mean, that's just hard to imagine. But the Christian writer C.S. Lewis wrote this fascinating essay about how a common vision can unite people of very different temperaments. In fact, he said, the essence of friendship is, is this. You too? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, I, you too? Right? <clears throat> While romantic love is kind of about two people facing towards one another, the idea of friendship is two people uh, standing side by side, looking at the same thing and being entranced by it. And, and he goes on to explain that the, the paradox of friendship is that it cannot merely be about itself. It, it must be about something else, something that both of the, both of the friends are committed to and, and passionate about, besides one another. In fact, here's what he writes. Friendship arises when two or more discover that they have in common some insight or interest. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something 
Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. I mean, th this is the essence of buddy movies, right? I mean, think of the, the, the buddy movies that are out there. Uh, Lethal Weapon, uh, Bad Boys, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, all based on great literary works. Okay, maybe not all of them. Uh, but the essence of those movies, the essence of those movies and these stories is that people from very different backgrounds, very different experiences, very different temperaments are thrust together with a common mission. And even though they don't necessarily like each other, in the process of doing that, they become a team. They become a unit. And along the way, they rescue each other and they push and provoke and challenge and encourage one another. And in the process, they become more than a team. They become friends. And their differences, the very things that were so difficult for them to begin with, to get along, become the strengths that complement one another to accomplish the vision or the mission that they have. So, what's the mission of your, or sorry, what's the vision of your marriage? What is the thing in common that you say, together we can accomplish this? Partnering together for the sake of human flourishing, for the sake of what God wants to do in the world around us through us together. Or maybe, I mean, maybe your vision is to make money. But not just money so you can pile it up high and go on fancy holidays all the time and just spend it on yourself, but so that you can give it away. So you can invest it in the lives of people who are struggling, care for the orphan and the widow, invest in the kingdom of God. And so you dream and you scheme and you work together because you have this vision. Or maybe, maybe your vision is to, to be just this incredible light in your neighborhood. To be the kind of place where the neighbors always stopping by, they slow down as they drive by, and, and their kids are coming into your house and going back out. And, and, and when people have needs, they knock on your door and say, hey, uh, could you help us? And together, the two of you say, man, we got this vision of what we could do. Or maybe your vision is to say, you know, we know an individual or a couple who's walking through hard times, and you know, together, we could, we could just pour into them and and that's just God's gifted us this way. And maybe it's something entirely different. You know, my, uh, my mom and dad, uh, my dad uh, works in a print shop. Uh, my mom worked in a medical office for many years. She's retired now. And they have this vision in their marriage. that They want to pour into and invest in what they call young people, which at their age, young people are like people in their 30s and 40s. Um, but, but so they... they uh, invite these people over to their place. And my mom is super friendly and outgoing. And she's an amazing cook. And so she invites them over. And they come in and everyone laughs and is at ease. And they eat a fantastic meal. Some of them haven't had a great meal for weeks. It just ministers to them. And my dad, he kind of waits. He's not quite as outgoing. But then once they've eaten and once things have settled in, he begins to go deeper and ask them questions about about their life and about what God's doing and, 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 and pouring into them. And by the time those folks leave at the end of the evening, they feel loved and cared for and they've been challenged and called to follow Jesus. And it is a brilliant thing that happens in their life. And for my parents, it's work and it costs them money. And sometimes people stay later in the evening than they would have liked for them to stay. 
but it also brings them happiness and a deep sense of satisfaction. And my dad could not possibly do what he does without my mom. And my mom does amazing things, but it would never be as effective without my dad doing that. And their differences complement them. And, and it's a beautiful picture of what God designed marriage to be about, about shalom. Of course, they raise a family and they have jobs and they do all these other things, but they have this common passion, this common vision that God works through in their lives. And, they have, and, and so if, if you're married, don't worry if you're like, well, I, I don't know what's the vision. It's okay. Don't, don't panic. But start to think about it. Pray about it. Start to dream about it. Say, God, what is it that you've called us together? Give them my skills and, and my, my wife or your, my husband's skills. I mean, what is it that you are calling us to do? And again, that's going to depend on your stage of life. It's going to depend on the opportunities that are before you. There's all kinds of factors, and it might shift throughout the years. But a strong Healthy marriage is not about, you know, me and, and my satisfaction and what my spouse is doing for me. It's not inward looking. A healthy marriage is outward looking about what God wants to do through the two of you together. And out of that flows a joy. And out of that comes a happiness and a sense of fulfillment that you'll never get if you're always just looking and saying, what's in it for me? And if you're single... Similar thing applies. I mean, God has a calling on your life, but it becomes stronger and more effective when you partner with others who, who also want to accomplish that calling. You just build deep, strong friendships when you're doing something worthwhile and valuable together. You should pursue that. And if, and I say this, understanding that every single person is looking for this, but if you happen to be looking for someone to be married, this is a great way to meet them. Now, to, to, to be doing something that calls you to something greater, that fulfills the calling in, in God has on your life, and to be busy doing it and pursuing that, and then to look over and be like, oh, she's cute. She's doing this, or he's handsome. He's doing the same, right? I mean, that's a brilliant way to meet somebody, and it develops a friendship, and out of that blossoms a romance, and then, you know, then the wedding bells, right? Now, now, I'm not saying that will happen. I mean, making a guarantee here, right? But it can, and it does. And I see it happen with some regularity in the lives of people who do this. Okay? So vocation, calling, is an important part when it comes to relationships. What is your calling? And are you pursuing it? But then there's another piece when it comes to relationships that is deeper yet, that is more personal, more more intimate, and it has to do with our sanctification. Now, sanctification simply means the process of Jesus changing us to become more and more like him. And that is definitely a process. In fact, it's a lifelong process that God works in our hearts and in our lives. Apostle Paul writes this, For he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And in another place, he says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
See, the Bible teaches that we are in this process of becoming more like Jesus. Now, the writer C.S. Lewis, again, he takes this and he just, he gives it such colorful language, but he paints a brilliant picture of what God's doing in our lives. He says this, if we let him, referring to God, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a God or goddess, a, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for, nothing less. Now, C.S. Lewis describes it in his own unique way, in quite a poetic way, but what he's saying is that God is in the process of transforming us, and he will do it. But it's a process and it takes time. And he does it by the work of his spirit, but he also does it through the relationships that we find ourselves in. In fact, the Bible is chock full of all kinds of references to these kinds of relationships that help us grow in faith and in fall as followers of Jesus. Here's what they say. I mean, this is short list. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to be there for one another through thick and thin. We're to share when one another are in need. We're to encourage one another. We're to identify and call out one another's gifts and strengths and abilities. We're to build up each other's faith through study and, the common, and common worship. We're to confess our sins to one another and point them out if the other person is blind to them. We're to admit wrongs and ask for forgiveness. We're to take steps of reconciliation when one person disappoints another. We're to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. See, the process of sanctification happens in large part when we're in relationship with other people around us. I mean, that's why we call people here to be in community with other believers, to walk with them and, and, and to do these kinds of things. And frankly, some of that, uh, the deeper you go, the more it has to be a smaller group. And so you might need to look at, from your community group for one or two people that you go deeper with. They begin to talk about confessing sins and, 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 and challenging one another and those kinds of things because that's where all kinds of growth takes place. That's where sanctification takes place in your life. And throughout the history of the church, these kinds of friendships have been called spiritual friendships because they're based on, on Jesus as being the center of the relationship and, and in growing closer to him, in, in sanctification. And it turns out, it turns out that the deepest form of this kind of friendship is marriage. Because that's what marriage is about too. You know, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible about marriage, it talks about, you know, men and women and, and what their relationship is to one another. And when we read that, that's normally what we focus on. But we skim over the part that is about the purpose of marriage. And, and, and I'm going to read it to you in a minute. Remember, the Apostle Paul is talking about, he's comparing Jesus and the church to a husband and a wife, a, a bride and the groom. So, but here's what he says. Listen to what he talks about when he talks about the purpose of marriage. He says, as husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. 
You see that? The goal of marriage, the purpose of marriage at the deepest level is to be sanctified. The goal is sanctification, to become more like Jesus, to become more holy, more set apart, more pure like he is. That's that's the purpose of marriage. See, the, the vision that you should have for your marriage is not just for shalom, for, for building, you know, human flourishing in whatever part that you find yourself. You should have that vision. But a, an e- even deeper vision should be for the sanctification in your life through spiritual friendship with the person that you love the most, the person who is your best friend. Now, this view is not some sort of romanticized pie-in-the-sky view of marriage. In fact, this is the opposite. This is a brutally realistic view of what marriage is all about. In this view of marriage, each person says to the other person, look, I see your flaws and your shortcomings and your insecurities and your weaknesses and your dependencies. But underneath it all, I see a picture of what God is doing in your life and how he's growing you to be more like Jesus. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, my son Zach and I, we hiked up Alouette Mountain about four and a half, five hours on the way up there. And when we got to the top, the, the, the clouds had rolled in. And so there was only like a few little places where we could kind of see down the valley and we're looking down the valley. And then all of a sudden, as we're standing there, the, the clouds beside us sort of moved aside and there was Blanchard's Peak. Now, if you look at Blanchard's Peak from, from here, it's just like a little bump beside Alouette Mountain. But if you're standing on the top of Alouette Mountain, and suddenly the, this, this massive granite peak appears before you. And you just, I mean, you just look up and it is, I mean, it's majestic. It is awesome. It's beautiful. And I mean, it just clouds parted. We had like a minute and a half and then they kind of moved in and, and it just left us with this vision like, ah, oh, that's amazing. And that's a little picture of what, of what marriage is like. You know, uh, often we see the flaws and the challenges and the, and the struggles that, that are there, but there are these moments, these moments when the clouds part and you see what God is doing in the life of your spouse, who he's making them to be, and it's awe-inspiring and majestic and beautiful, and, and, and you have this sort of vision of what God wants to do, and especially when you see it up close. But up close is also where you see their sin and the brokenness in your spouse most. Up close is where the sin in your life and the shortcomings in your life get pointed out and called out. And that's a painful process, isn't it? Tim Keller writes this. The first part of making your marriage into a relationship that enhances growth is to accept this inherent feature of married life. Marriage by its very nature has the power of truth the power to show you the truth about who you are. People are appalled when they get sharp, far-reaching criticisms from their spouse. They immediately begin to think that they married the wrong person. But you must realize that it isn't ultimately your spouse who is exposing the sinfulness in your heart. It is marriage itself. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with your own self. In other words doesn't matter who you married. You think, well, if I didn't marry him or if I didn't marry her, then I wouldn't get this sharp, you know, feedback in your life. No, no. 
If you married someone else and you thought it was just perfect, you'd still get the same thing because it's not them. It's marriage that does that to you. It reveals to you your sins. It reveals to you in the most intimate way the shortcomings and the, and the, and the, and the weaknesses in your life. You know, my wife says, and I, 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 I say the same all the time. She says, I didn't realize how much of a sinner I was until I got married. Because before you could always kind of hide it. And now, now you can't. And look, it, it doesn't matter who you're married to, right? I mean, I, I remember once a couple of years ago, my wife, a couple of years, quite a few years ago, not long after we got married, uh, my wife was talking to a lady in our community group who was struggling in her marriage. And that lady was sharing with my wife, you know, the, the proud challenges she had and the frustrations with her husband and all that. And then she turned to my wife and she said to my wife, oh, it must be great in your marriage because you are married to a pastor. Now, if I'd have been there, I'd have been like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I wasn't. I think that when she said that, my wife almost threw up in her mouth. I know that she rolled her eyes, and because I wasn't there to say anything, she made it very clear to that lady, oh, no, being married to John is no walk in the park, right? I mean, he got all kinds of issues, right? So don't get the impression Oh, well, they don't have, and if only I was married to, and it, no, no, every marriage is the same this way. Your marriage will surface your sins, which if you then allow God's work in your life, if you're willing to, will move you into a process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's a painful gift, but it's a gift that he gives us. It's part of the vision and the purpose of marriage. Now, on the flip side of that, your spouse can also become the source of incredible encouragement and strength as you follow after Jesus. I mean, they, they, can, they, they can spur you on to love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews. I can't tell you how many times I've been discouraged and I've come home and, and Nula has strengthened me and she's pointed me back to Jesus and, and she prays with me even when I don't feel like praying. And, and, and sometimes she just outright challenges me to follow Jesus more. I remember one time uh, we were on a holiday in Hawaii and, um, and uh, we were driving with a family to a, to a lookout point and uh, there was a parking lot there and I pulled right in between these two very nice cars with our van and I remember telling my children in no uncertain terms, be careful when you open the door. Forgetting that they had sliding doors, so there was no problem where they got out. Meanwhile, when I opened my door, the wind caught it, and it went wham, right into the car beside me. And the car beside me was not a clunky old, you know, rental car. It was like a brand new BMW model convertible. And the crease on the side panel was about 10 inches long and about three inches deep. And you know what I did in that moment? You know what I did? I turned to the kids and said, put your seatbelts on. And I closed the door and I just turned it up and I put it in reverse and I began backing out. And my wife said to me, John, John, you can't do this. You can't do this. And you know, in, all, in that moment, all I could think of was, it was like, 
the, 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 how mad that guy was going to be and, and how much it was going to cost us and, 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 and the way it would wreck the rest of our holidays. And, and what I wasn't thinking in that moment is what, what Jesus would expect me to do. That nor was I thinking of, of the message that it would send to my, to my children or, or the mess that it would leave him or the guilt that I would carry for the rest of the holidays and more, or what it would do to my integrity. And it was my wife who said, John, you can't do this. And so I pulled back in. And I opened the door this time very, very carefully. And I got out. And I sorted it out. And I'm so grateful for my wife in that moment. I mean, her and me, following Jesus together. We can do that. I need her. It was a powerful, and I grew like crazy in that moment. See, here's the vision for your marriage. This is not about you nitpicking and finding all the wrong things in your spouse's life and say, well, I'm helping you sanctify yourself. That's not the picture here. It's not about you demanding that they change so that they fulfill your needs. It's not the vision. The vision that you should have for your marriage is one of spiritual friendship walking together with this vision of what God could do in their life, what he is doing, and what God would do in your life and what he is doing, it will do, and to walk together and to encourage and strengthen and to challenge and to love and to do all the things that the scriptures teach us to for one another with your best friend because of what Jesus has done in your life. In our culture, the wedding day is often considered like the, the pinnacle, the, the summit of the mountain. Uh, you know, again, if you watch the rom-coms, it starts at the base with the people meeting one another and, and having attraction and falling in love. And, and, and they kind of grows and they endure the challenges and the, and the problems until they finally arrive at the summit, at the peak, which is the wedding day. Which is great. I mean, it's again, they're great movies. Nothing wrong with watching some rom coms. But, but the Bible turns that idea upside down. The wedding is not the summit. Rather, the wedding is the, is the base camp. The, the wedding is the place to start, to begin the summit to the top. And the top of that mountain is way, way more beautiful. Trevor Wax writes about his experience when he lived in Romania. He was serving in a little church in Romania. And uh, in that church was this, this couple that were in their 70s. Uh, he was uh, the elder of the, the church there. In fact, they were so committed to that church that, that uh, when uh, they, uh, they built a new building across the village, that, uh, that couple literally sold their house and bought another house next to the church so they could be like the first ones there and the last ones to leave. And, um, and uh, he tells about uh, how they uh, had four children. They had tons of ch grandchildren. And he was invited to their 50th wedding anniversary that they hosted. And he said they brought a long table into their small little house. And they brought dozens of extra chairs. And, and, um, and, and then this farmer with these gnarled hands put on his, his one suit, his finest suit, 
and he and his tie, and he took his place at the head of the table next to his wife of 50 years. And across the, the living room, scrunched together in all the spaces that they, that they could around this long table were his children, uh, their children, and grandchildren, and, um, and then people like him, uh, singles who were invited into their family, who were serving in the church, who were part of what they were deeply involved in. And uh, he said that they began by singing a couple of songs, a couple of hymns together. And then they had a time of prayer thanking God for what he had done in their lives. And, and then they said a few things about each other and uh, a little bit about their family. And then he said, then we ate like there was no tomorrow. And then he writes this. He says, I remember that day well. How it seemed the laughter and the love and the conversation filled the room and soaked into the walls. I was sharing in the blessings of an ordinary husband and wife whose faithfulness to the Lord and to one another had been fruitful. Filling that room was the flesh and blood, living and breathing fruit of their union. As the two of them looked over that table, they saw the fruit of their love, their four children, all those grandchildren, some of which were old enough to begin having children of their own. They also saw their spiritual kids and grandkids, people like me who were the fruit of their faithfulness to the church. Five decades of faithfulness, four precious families, the pillars of a strong church. And then he said this, I wonder if instead of seeing the wedding ceremony as the pinnacle of a relationship, we ought to see the 50th anniversary celebration as the summit. Such a great picture. This is a picture of a marriage not based on a social contract that is just about duty and self-sacrifice and, and social standing. It's not a picture of a marriage that is simply based on emotional feelings of romantic love and sex and self-fulfillment. No, no, this is, a, this is a picture of a marriage based on a vision, a God-given vision for human flourishing, for shalom in the world around them, among their family and friends and in the church that they were involved in, in, in this little corner of the world, in a little village in Romania near the border of Hungary. And it's the result of a vision of seeing their spouse grow through spiritual friendship, to love and to know and to follow Jesus deeper and deeper. It's a vision that looks outwards instead of inwards. And yet along the way, and certainly in the end, it leads to this deep joy and happiness and this incredible sense of self-fulfillment. And they don't have a perfect marriage. And I can say that even though I've never met them because nobody gets a perfect marriage. Nobody does. But if you follow the ways of God, it gets rich and meaningful. After you're married... 50 years, your, your, your marriage is going to look different than theirs does. I mean, you aren't a farmer living in a little village in the edge of Romania. After 20 or 30 or 50 or 70 years, your kids might not be around, or they might. You may never have had kids at all. You might be rich. You might just barely be getting by. Your stories could be different than theirs. But if you follow God's design for marriage... If you pursue together a vision for shalom that is much bigger than just you, just, just your marriage, if it's about the world around you, 
And if you have a vision for the growing holiness, the sanctification of your spouse, if you look outwards instead of inwards, along the way and in the end, you will experience the happiness and the fulfillment that is so elusive to everyone who's trying to get it this way. You see, happiness is not the goal of marriage. It's the byproduct of a good marriage. Self-fulfillment isn't something that comes by you looking for it for yourself. It comes as you give your life away to others. If you're single, married, if you want to experience these things in your life, the way to do it is to pursue wholeheartedly the call of God on your life. Okay, would you bow your heads? Let's, let's pray together. Well, God, we're humbled again today just by the wisdom and the beauty of, of how you've created this world. God, the way you've designed it to work, that is when we give our lives away, when we serve others, when we, when we look for the well-being of others, you work in our lives, not magically, not instantly, but over time and in a beautiful way. And so, God, I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would reveal to us that calling in our lives, that you would sharpen it, that you would focus it, that you would continue to call us further towards that vision that you have for us as individuals, the vocation that we have. And Father, may we walk together in that vision with others. Lord, for, for those who are married, Lord, I pray that you would grant us a passionate vision together for what you want us to do in the world around us. One where our our differences complement each other and we're stronger together than we'd ever be by ourselves. Lord, would you grant us that kind of a vision? And Father, I pray that, that you would help us to walk in spiritual friendships. Lord, either if we're single with other good friends or again in our marriage, God, would you help us to, to, to do what you call us to so that we might grow and learn, so that we might become more like Jesus. Lord, it's not easy, and yet in the end it's so rich and it's so beautiful. And so, Lord, grant us the strength and the courage to live the way you call us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us today. I hope that you've been encouraged and strengthened. May you walk in the ways that God teaches us when it comes to our relationships. I want to send you away with these words from the Apostle Paul. He writes to his friends in the church in Philippi, and this is what he writes. He says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.